that effect. Please take your Bibles with me and turn to Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel 14 and 15 in your Bibles, please. The name of the sermon, Principles of a Prayer Answering God. Principles of a Prayer Answering God. I'm going to give you three principles in our application this evening. And it's going to come from a, a bit of a sidewind, an interesting source as we consider this evening the God that we serve and as we consider his message to the nation of Israel. Prayer is such a wonderful part of our lives, such a vital part of our lives. And one of the greatest blessings of prayer is not inherently in the answering but it's in the confidence that we know the Lord hears us. It's in the confidence of knowing that we have a faithful God, a God who will hear our prayers. And yet, there are conditions upon which God hears our prayers. And those conditions are going to be explored this evening as we consider Ezekiel chapter 14 and Ezekiel 15. As we begin these two chapters, verse 1 says, Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me, and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, This phrase, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, we're going to find it three times in these two chapters that we'll be looking at this evening. In chapter 14, verse 2, which we just read. In chapter 14, verse 12. And in chapter 15, verse 1. And as we consider these three times when the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel, each one is going to come with a distinct but related message given to the nation of Judah concerning their relationship with God. In verses 1 through 11 of chapter 14, the Lord sends a message to Judah about the ineffectiveness of their petitions unto God. That the Lord will not hear selfish petitions. In chapter 14 verses 12 through 23, the Lord sends a message to Judah about the unwillingness of God to spare any but the righteous from his wrath. That God will not spare a wicked people. And then in chapter 15 verses 1 through 8, the Lord sends a message to Judah concerning the inability of God to use them as he desired to do. And we'll see that God won't, nor can he, use a sinful nation. And all three of these elements, all three of these lessons, all three of these prophecies, the word of the Lord to the nation of Israel, are going to help us understand some things about a prayer answering God. About a, a God that seeks to use us but how it is that He can use us as we make ourselves usable. And of course, whenever we read the Bible, we should begin by understanding what the Bible is saying. After we understand it, then we can properly apply it to our lives. So as we have been doing now for a couple of months, as our format has been, we're going to first understand the Scriptures, and then after we understand it, we're going to carefully apply it. In chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, we see that God will not hear selfish petitions. 
The scene opens in verse 1 with the elders sitting before Ezekiel. Perhaps you can see the scene. We know that Ezekiel cannot speak unless the Lord opens his mouth. This is not the first time the elders have sat before Ezekiel seeking answers. In chapter 8, just before the Lord takes Ezekiel and pulls him up by the hair and takes him to Jerusalem and sets him down in Jerusalem and shows him everything that's going on, all the abominations in Jerusalem, just before that, the elders are sitting before Ezekiel as well. And I'm sure the elders were not pleased to hear what Ezekiel had to say when he starts talking about all the abominations going on in Jerusalem at that time. Well, here they are again. The elders are sitting before Ezekiel and they came to Ezekiel when they wanted information, when they sought to petition God for something. They want to know what God has been doing or will be doing or, or to ask Him to do something. And as they came to Ezekiel, God's response to these elders is rather indignant, somewhat angry, a bit offended that these people would come to Him. A bit offended that these elders in Israel would come to God. Look with me in verse 3. God says, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired at all by them? God says, these people have come to me with hearts that are unwilling to obey. So should I even waste my time talking with them? Have you ever known somebody that comes to you for advice, but they're not actually asking for advice? They're asking for you to validate what they've already decided in their heads already. I had a guy like this I knew in college. He would come to me and he would tell me all of his woes about his terrible friends and how they were terrible friends. And I'd look at him and I'd say, you've got terrible friends. He knew he had terrible friends. And he'd say, yeah, what should I do about it? And I'd tell him, you need to get rid of your friends. You need to separate from these people. They're not good for you. They, you, you don't like who you are when you're around them. You, they, they don't lead you into God. They lead you into mischief. They lead you into trouble. They lead you into drama. This is not what you want. He'd say, yeah, you're right. And I'd say, oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. And he'd go. And he'd do nothing. And then he'd come back two weeks later and he'd say, Jamin, I've got a problem. I'd say, I know you have a problem. You've got terrible friends. He said, yeah, I've got terrible friends. And I tell him, you know what I'm going to tell you, right? He said, yeah, I know what you're going to tell me. I said, okay, well, conversation over. Have a good day. And he'd go and he'd keep his friends. And then he'd come back to me again. And it got to the point where I'd look at him and I'd say, look, you're wasting your time. I'm wasting my time. You're coming to me trying to get me to tell you that your friends are okay. And I'm never going to tell you that your friends are okay. You're not changing your mind. I'm not changing your mind so why are we even having this conversation? That's a little bit like what God was doing here. The elders were coming to Ezekiel and they were saying, we need to hear from the Lord. And God is looking at these elders' hearts and they have absolutely no desire. They're not even willing to obey what God would say. They have no desire. All they want to hear is what they want to hear. And they want Ezekiel to tell them what they want to hear so that they can feel good about doing what they want to do instead of what God wants them to do. Ezekiel's not going to say what they want to hear. And so God says, should I even be inquired of them? The question is, 
Why did they even ask in the first place? Why do they keep coming back? They're not coming back and asking the same question because they want to you to give them the same answer. They're coming back to ask the question again and again and again, expecting that one of these times Ezekiel might just say, yeah, you're doing just fine, Israel. But they didn't hear that. And characteristically, if you look back in the history of Israel, what did Israel do when they didn't hear what they wanted to hear from the, the prophet of God? They found someone that told them what they wanted to hear, right? They went and they found a prophet who was willing to say whatever they wanted to hear. And they convinced themselves that they were doing what God wanted them to do. So they start with Ezekiel, a man who truly does know God, seek God, love God. And they don't like his message, so they move on to the false prophets, anyone who would confirm their sinful hearts. Last week we talked about that warning against the false prophets and against the false prophetesses. The ones that prophesied out of their own hearts and according to their own spirits. Those are the ones who they sought. Ezekiel, nope, he's not going to tell us what we want to hear, so let's go to those false ones. They'll tell us what, what we want to hear every time. And so God says, should I even take the time to listen to them if they're just going to ignore me anyway? And why? Why was it that they would ignore him? We see it mentioned three times in this passage. In verse 3, in verse 4, and verse 7. The men have set up their idols in their hearts. They have put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. They are pursuing the idols of their own hearts at the expense of obedience to the Word of God. So it is not that God didn't want to be their God. It's not that God didn't want to hear them. It's not that God didn't want to answer the petitions of their hearts. It's that their own sinful hearts had been hardened so much to the message of God that they would not listen to God and God wasn't going to waste His time on them any longer. But you know, our God is ever merciful. Our God is exceedingly patient. And so he tells them in verse 6, take a look at it with me. Thus saith the Lord God, Repent, and turn yourselves from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. He is still telling them, even when they come to him and they're not willing to listen, he says, here's the message for you. Repent. If you would prepare your heart to seek me, then you would indeed find me. God calls them, this word repent in the original Hebrew literally has the idea of turning back toward a previous disposition or toward a previous point. God asks them to, to stop going in the direction they're going and to turn around and start going toward Him. And if they would turn around and start going toward Him, they would reject the idolatry that they've built up in their hearts. If they'd seek the Lord with a genuine heart, He would listen. But you see, God won't hear selfish petitions. God doesn't listen to the person who comes seeking their own gain and their own benefit. That's not the God we serve. That's not what prayer is about. Principle of a prayer answering God. In verses 12 through 23 of chapter 14, we see secondly that God won't spare wicked people. God won't spare wicked people. God highlights in these verses not just the hearts of the people as they come to Him, but the actions of the people that are in the land. Now, they are by the river Kibar. 
uh, Ezekiel and these elders, they are near Babylon and many, many, many hundreds of miles away in Jerusalem, bad things are happening there as well. People are still wicked. The people are still doing wrong. And in these verses, God promises four different judgments upon the land of Israel. In verse 13, He promises famine. In verse 15, He promises that wild beasts would overrun the land. In verse 17, He promises war. And in verse 19, He promises pestilence. This is not a very um, nice list of promises. You see all those books all the time that you can get in the Christian bookstore, The Promises of God for You. And there are a lot of good promises for Christians. But this, this would not have been in the, in the Jewish Christian bookstore, The Promises of God for You. Uh, Jewish Christian bookstore, probably not, not quite what I was going for with that. But uh, the Jewish bookstore would not have had God's promises for you and had Ezekiel 14 on, on, in, in that list. Because this was not a very comforting group of promises. But what's most significant is the sure declaration that every man who has trespassed against God, every man whose heart is against God, would find a piece of these judgments. God has promised there is a remnant in the land. We'll look at that. He's promised that there is indeed a group of people in the land who love the Lord, who are righteous before Him, who are serving the Lord out of a right heart. But He says, everyone who's not, you're going to find your peace of this judgment. And the way God expresses the surety of these consequences is about as strong as you could possibly imagine. In verse 14, 16, 18, and 20, we see this strong conditional statement. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, that would be the city, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness. Throughout Israel's history, righteous men have always stood in the gap between God and the transgressors in the land. We mentioned several weeks ago now that the only man that is actually physically mentioned to be a man that stood in the gap is the man Moses. However, we see several other men in Scripture who did indeed stand in the gap between God and the wicked world. While each man would still be judged for their own heart on Judgment Day, yet oftentimes the righteous actions of a man in Israel would stay the hand of God's wrath against the entire nation. We see such an example in Numbers chapter tw- uh, 25. You remember the story of Phineas? Phineas the son of Aaron? This is just after Balaam had sought to curse Israel and could not. And the Scriptures tell us that the doctrine of Balaam entered into the camp whereby the Moabites took their women and they sought to destroy the men of Israel morally. And there was a great plague in the land at the time because of the moral failures of the men of Israel with the women of Moab. And as the the righteous in the congregation of the Lord were weeping before the tabernacle of God, a man of Israel brought a woman of Moab into his tent to fornicate with her. Right there in front of all those that are weeping for the sin of Israel. And the Scriptures tell us in Numbers chapter 25, verse 11, or prior to verse 11, excuse me, um, verse 11 we'll get to in just a moment. But the Scriptures tell us in Numbers 25 that Phinehas was so angry, so filled with righteous indignation against this man for his sin, 
that he took a javelin and he thrust them both through and he killed them both. And God said this in verse 11 of Numbers 25. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel while he was zealous for my sake among them that I consume not the children of Israel in my jealousy. That this man, because of his zeal for the Lord, pleased the Lord so much that it actually turned the anger of the Lord away from the entire nation. This was Phineas. Now imagine men like Noah, Daniel, and Job. Some of the greatest men in history as far as their relationship with God. Noah, a man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord when the entire world had turned to wickedness. Noah, a man that loved the Lord and whom the Lord loved so much that God had determined that the entire future of the human race would travel, would go through his posterity. Daniel. We hardly even need to mention all of the ways in which God loved Daniel and how God was so good to Daniel in his younger years preserving him making him a great man in the kingdom of Babylon as the kingdom transitioned from Babylon to Persia Daniel survived that transition only to be cast into the lion's den because of a foolish law by an impetuous king only to be protected from that lion's den Daniel the man who was given by God because of the favor that God had for him, insights into prophecy that no other man in history has ever been given. And Job. We've spent many months learning about Job. A man who God said is perfect in his generation, that there is none like Job upon the earth. A man who was perfect and upright, who feared the Lord and eschewed or rejected evil. A man whom the Lord was so confident in his character that God allowed Satan to go down and take everything from him but his life. And yet in all those things, Job never cursed God or charged him foolishly. And for all that, Job became a great blessed man for his loyalty to Jehovah God. And as we consider these three men, God says, though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in that city, even if all three of them and their combined righteousness and God's love for all three of those men, even if they resided in Jerusalem, God says the wickedness of the city is so great that, no, that none of them would be enough for me to spare this city of its judgment. However, God says this does not mean that there will be no one left, that there will be no remnant. And that's what He says in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 14. Look at it with me. Yet behold, therein shall be left a remnant that shall be brought forth, both sons and daughters. Behold, they shall come forth unto you, and ye shall see their way and their doings. And ye shall be comforted concerning the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem, even concerning all that I have brought upon it. And they shall comfort you when ye see their ways and their doings, and ye shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, saith the Lord God. Therein shall be left a remnant. There are some who will live through the terrible judgment to come, and these will give hope for Israel of a future. See, there's always hope with God. We've seen it week in and week out in Ezekiel, haven't we? That there's always hope with God. So, verses 1-11, through God will not hear selfish petitions. 
in verses 12 through 23, God will not spare a wicked people. Finally, in chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, God will not use a sinful nation. God will not use a sinful nation. The final word which we consider is here in these eight verses in chapter 15. Here God gives an illustration that's meant to demonstrate the condition of the hearts of Israel. You know, there are certain woods which work very good for building and other woods which do not. I grew up in Colorado. And in Colorado, there are a great number of aspen trees. Now, there are up here as well, particularly as you go farther up north. It's a different type of aspen. It's not the aspens that um, we have there because those ones tend to like to live uh, in the mountains. They like to live at uh, high altitudes. Aspen trees are beautiful. They've got white bark, smooth bark. They've got little, small little leaves that have a nice sound when they rustle. And in the fall, driving up to the mountains, and the hillsides are covered with aspens. So as you're driving into the foothills, the hills are yellow. A little red here, a little orange there, but just yellow with the beauty of these aspens. Aspens are a beautiful, beautiful tree. But their wood is garbage. It's good for nothing. I wouldn't even make toothpicks out of aspen wood. It's terrible. It's really good for two things. It's good to be a tree, to look pretty, and it's good to throw into the fire when all is said and done. And even then, it doesn't burn real well. The wood is garbage. It's kind of a weed tree in the manner of speaking. And that's exactly how God likens Judah. He likens them to a vine. It's not good for much of anything but burning. Look what he says in verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, what is the vine tree more than any tree, or than a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Shall wood be taken thereof to do any work, or shall men take a pin of it and hang it to any vessel thereon? Behold, it is cast into the fire for fuel. The fire devoureth both ends of it, and the midst of it is burned. Is it meat for any work? Is this vine good for anything but to be burned? It's really not. You can't make anything out of it. You can't do anything with this wood. Behold, when it was whole, it was meat for no work. How much less shall it be meat for, uh, yet for any work when the fire hath devoured it and it is burned? Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, verse 6, as the vine tree among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so will I give the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them. They shall go out from one fire, and another fire shall devour them. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate, because they have committed a trespass, saith the Lord God. God will do what the land and the people deserve. As he says in verse 8, I will make the land desolate. He will consume them with the fire of His wrath. They're, they're nothing but dead wood. Good for nothing. Can't be made into anything beautiful. Can't be used for any worthwhile purpose. The only thing they're good for is the fires of judgment. That's pretty rough. Pretty harsh. Say, so how are we going to find principles of a prayer answering God from this pastor? Bear with me. Here we go. Principles of a prayer answering God. We've understood the passage. We know what the passage is saying. God has rejected them as, as they would seek to petition Him. That God has revealed to them these 
things that God has told them that because of their wickedness, even if Job and Noah and Daniel were in the land, they would not be spared, that the wicked will be destroyed, and then finally, that they're kind of good for nothing for him as a people. And as we understand these things, what we also understand is that both Old and New Testaments reveal to us that there are conditions upon which we can both seek and find the Lord. And there are conditions upon which the Lord will not be found when we seek Him. So let's learn of these conditions, a few of these conditions this evening as reflected in the text. Conditions upon which the Lord will be found and will not be found of us. The three conditions are these. God does not answer prayers outside of His will. God does not answer prayers outside of His will. Second, if you choose to go your own way in God's name, He may just let you go your own way. It's a scary thought, isn't it? Third, God answers the prayers of those who genuinely seek Him. God answers the prayers of those who genuinely seek Him. So first, first point, God does not answer prayers outside of His will. We talked this morning about a culture of amusement that brings about a culture of entitlement. An entitlement culture seeks not to serve God, but to have God serve Him. And so we find in this culture a church that believes God to be kind of a divine milk cow. A divine ATM. A divine all-you-can-eat buffet. You go to God, you ask for it, pops out, you're good to go until you need them again, right? That's how an ATM works. I don't need money today, I'm not going to go to the ATM. I do need money tomorrow, I'm going to go. A lot of people see God as that way. It's kind of that lucky rabbit's foot. Jehovah is a father to the believer. And he treats believers like a child. If my daughter were to come up to me, and say, cookie please, which I've heard before. Cookie please. There are many things as a father I would take into consideration when she asks that question. How close is it to dinner time? Is it going to spoil her dinner? How obedient has she been lately? Is she worthy of a cookie? How many cookies has she had today? It's a good question, right? How many cookies has she had today? See, all of these elements... I'll consider as to whether or not I will or whether I will not give her a cookie. But let me tell you one thing that doesn't go into my mind. Whether or not I want to bless my daughter. That never enters my mind. I don't sit there and she says, cookie please, and I say, hmm, do I want to make you happy today or do I want to make you miserable? Do I want to bless you or do I want to just make you walk away feeling like you can't please dad today? That, that dad just, it doesn't matter what you ask. You could ask for asparagus and he's going to say, no, get out of here. That's never entered my mind. I always, always want to bless my daughter. But you know, sometimes doing what's best for her is not always doing what she wants. I want my child to be happy. I want my child to know my love for her in physical ways. But it may not be that giving her a cookie is the way I can best express my love for her. Maybe she's had enough cookies and giving her another would make her sick. 
Maybe I would be glad to give her a cookie, but she needs to clean her room first. Maybe she hasn't been obedient, and rewarding her would not benefit her. It would actually be a detriment to her growth of character if I'm rewarding her for her doing things that are wrong. And so in my love for her, in my desire to bless her, I want to do what's best for her. Sometimes that may be allowing her to have a cookie, as she's asked. Sometimes it's not. You know, God's like this with us. When you petition God for something, I'm sure there are many things that God considers from a human perspective. But one of the things He does not consider, one of the things that never enters His mind is whether or not He wants to bless His children. Whether or not He wants to bless you. Maybe what we're asking for is not really in our best interest. Maybe what we're asking for is contrary to His revealed will. Maybe what we're asking for is not really what we think it is. Maybe what we're asking for cannot be had until we've done something else first. God doesn't just deny us things for the pleasure of saying no to His child. God loves us. As God called upon Israel to obey Him, through giving in Malachi chapter 3, he told them this in verse 10. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. God tells the nation that he longs to bless them beyond what they could possibly imagine if only they would do what he wants them to do First, if you will only do what I've asked you to do, I long to give you every blessing. Consider also James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. James asks a question. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Among you meaning among brethren, by the way. This is not a verse to nations. This is a verse to the church. From whence cometh wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, but ye, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lusts. God doesn't regard the petitions of those who do, who do not regard Him. God is not going to be influenced by the man whose heart is utterly unwilling to conform himself to God's word. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss. I could be on my knees every day asking God to let me find a million dollar check sitting around that I could then cash and have money to build a church for us and have money to, to provide for my family. Have you ever done the math? On a million dollars. I mean, you look at these sportsmen's contracts, and they're getting paid a million dollars to play a three or four hour game. If you were to earn $40,000 a year for 40 years, you'd make like $1.3 million in your 40 years before taxes. A million dollars is a lot of money. And so I could ask God, would you just give me a million dollars? 
Why isn't God doing this? I'd use it for His blessing. I'd use it for His benefit. I'd use it for His favor. But could you see how that might be asking amiss? Can you see how that million dollars might just destroy you, your faith, your reliance on God, the ability of God to do things in a wonderful way without you rolling in cash? This was the very problem of Ezekiel 14. These men had come to Ezekiel to inquire of the Lord, but their hearts were already set in their ways. They simply wanted validation of their wickedness. They didn't come to align themselves with God, which is what prayer is. They came to milk the God cow. God doesn't like that. Never has. Never will. This is not a true petition for wisdom. It's a selfish people seeking God's stamp of approval upon their sin. And my question to you in this first point is how often do we do the same thing? We ask God to teach us how to love our estranged family members or our wicked neighbors or whatever the case may be. But in our hearts we draw the line at opening up communications or, or praying for their blessing or giving them money when they ask for it. And so we're not actually going to ask God for Him to guide. We are telling God that we want Him to solve our problem without Him changing us. We want God to give us a love for someone, but we're not willing to love them. What's God supposed to do with that? We ask God to help us forgive that person, but we don't do anything in our hearts or in our minds or in our actions to reflect forgiveness. What's God supposed to do with that? How's God supposed to do something in us when we're resisting His will at every turn? We ask God to grow the church, to make it a godly example of Christ in Buffalo. We ask this all the time, or at least I do, and you hear it, so I'm assuming if you're praying with me on Sunday mornings, you're praying it too. But if in our hearts we're not willing to tell others about Christ, then what's God supposed to do with that? How is God supposed to answer our prayer if... We're asking God to do something, but in our hearts we're not willing to be changed into what He wants us to be so that He can do it through us. How often do we ask God for things? Not with a heart willing to become more Christ-like in the process, but rather with a stubborn and unwilling heart. How often do I treat God like my milk cow? Drawing from Him anything I can without any personal conformity to the expectations of God for me. And we'll get this in the last point. But God doesn't want us to come to Him simply because we need to inform Him of what we need. He knows what we need. God doesn't want us to come to Him because He likes to see us grovel at His feet. Yep, another 15 minutes of groveling from this guy and I think I'll probably give him what he wants. That's not God. God's not up there, oh, you needed that? I didn't even know. If you'd have told me earlier that you needed that, I'd have given it to you. This is not the God that we serve. God wants us to come to Him so that in the process of seeking His perfect will, our hearts and our minds will become more like His heart and His mind and we will thus become better servants of Him upon earth. That's prayer. So God does not answer prayers outside His will. Second principle. This is an important one. If you choose to go your own way in God's name, He may just let you go that way. 
If you choose to go your own way in God's name, He may just let you do it. This is the warning that we must add to this reality of how we petition God. The warning is rooted in the events of a prophet of God. We talked about him briefly already. In Numbers chapter 22, a prophet named Balaam. Let's turn there, please. Numbers 22. This might be one of my favorite stories in the Bible because it teaches us something so profound about God. It teaches us a concept called the permissive will of God. That sometimes, if we harden our hearts before God and then petition Him for things, He might just let us go the direction we're asking Him to go. Even though it's not His will for us. Balak is the king of Moab. He's afraid of the children of Israel. He's afraid they're going to destroy him. So he sends for a prophet of God, and that prophet's name is Balaam. Knowing that whoever Balaam blessed, that guy's blessed. And whoever Balaam curses, that guy is cursed. In verses 5 and 6 of Numbers 22, he asks Balaam to come and to curse this people Israel. Balaam asks them to wait while he inquires of the Lord. And so Balaam inquires of the Lord, and the Lord's response to him is found in verse 12. And God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them, thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. Case closed. End deal. Thou shalt not go with them, thou shalt not curse the people. Pretty simple, right? No and no. Don't go, don't curse. Don't go, don't curse. Could have been on flashcards even. It was that, don't go, don't curse. Don't go, don't curse. Don't go, don't curse. He could have just been flipping them all night. Don't go, don't curse. So the next day, these men come to him and say, what do you, what, what do you think? And they, he says, nope, can't go, can't curse. He's been flipping those all night. Can't go, can't curse. Can't go, can't curse. No, he says, can't do it. See my tech secretary, she'll validate. You're out of here. And they leave. It's not it though. It's not enough. Balak says, he just needs more convincing. So he sends a better entourage, more money, more honorable princes, as if somehow offering the prophet more money and more honor would change God's answer. Balak sent these men with the idea that everyone has a price. And indeed, it seems as though everyone does, at least in this story. So notice what Balaam says in verse 18. He says, if Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do more or less. Yes, Balaam, you've got it. Don't go, don't curse. Don't go, don't curse. Don't go, don't curse. Great. Done deal. See my secretary. She'll validate you again. Get out of here. But look at verse 19. You think he's got it, but he doesn't. Look what he says. Now therefore I pray you, tarry ye also here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. What more could God have said? He said, don't go, don't curse. What else could God have said? Don't smile? I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to know what more Balak, Balaam could have asked God here and what more God could have offered in this situation. What is Balaam doing here? Balaam is going to God, knowing God's answer already, and asking God to change himself because Balaam is looking for a convenient way to get money and honor. Balaam is coming to God with a heart not willing to conform himself to God's will, but with a desire that God would somehow conform himself to Balaam's will. 
Interesting. Balaam's got an ulterior motive in his heart. He knows full well what God has said, but he is about to go to God and see if God has changed his mind. You say, surely this isn't going to go well for Balaam, right? Balaam's going to ask God again and God's going to say, what did I tell you last time? Don't go, don't curse. Don't go, don't curse, right? That's not what God says. Look at verse 20. And God came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, that shalt thou do. I'm sorry, verse 19 is up here again. Um, I think I have two slides with verse 19 and I don't have verse 20, but you're reading it in your Bibles anyway. So God is allowing Balaam to go. Why? Is it because God changed his mind? No. God did not change his mind. But see, God has given each of us a free will. And he has chosen in his sovereignty to allow us to exercise that will. Balaam's heart is not right with God. And God is allowing Balaam to go down this path because Balaam's heart is not in a place where he'd be willing to obey God. This will happen several times more in Balaam's adventure to Moab. The angel of the Lord will stand before his donkey as he's walking down the road and his donkey will turn aside because the angel of the Lord was about ready to kill Balaam and he'll crush Balaam's foot and Balaam will smack the donkey. And then they'll be going again and Balaam will, donkey will turn aside and Balaam will smack the donkey. And the third time it happens, the donkey's mouth is opened by the Lord and the donkey says, hey, stop hitting me. I've been saving your life here. If we'd have kept going, you'd have been killed by the angel of the Lord. And then Balaam sees the angel of the Lord and he says, Oh, the angel of the Lord was about ready to kill me for going to Moab. Should I turn around, God? What a silly question, right? Don't go, don't curse. Don't go, don't curse. Don't go, don't curse. He's going. What do you think God's thinking? Yeah, not a good thing. Don't go, don't curse. And here, here, here Balaam is. Oh, okay, you almost killed me three times. If the, if the donkey hadn't turned out of the way, you would have killed me. Now the donkey's talking to me. And should I turn around? He says, God, and, and God again. His heart is so unwilling to obey that God says, no, go. Look all the way at verse 34. Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I knew not that thou stoodest in the way against me. Now therefore, if it displeased thee, I will... Get me back again. And again, God allows him to go. The angel of the Lord will stand in his way. Balaam doesn't repent. Balaam doesn't turn around. Balaam did know that it displeased God. Balaam knows he is displeasing the Lord, but he continues to seek God's guidance anyway. And God allows Balaam's selfish heart to lead him down a very selfish path. Well, the story ends in tragedy for Balaam. He tries his very best to curse Israel. And every time he opens his mouth, nothing comes out but blessing. And in the end, he's killed along with the nation of Moab when Israel goes against them. This historical account serves to teach us a lesson which we must all regard carefully. I've mentioned it already. This is called the permissive will of God and it's not a place that you ever want to be. 
When we come to God falsely, seeking our own will and seeking to get His approval for our own will, when we know clearly, and this is a condition, when we clearly know that we are, we are opposing the will of God, and yet we come before God seeking His will anyway, He may just let you have it and let you face the consequences of it. I saw this time and time again down at college when my wife and I were working there. A young lady would come up to us and would say, yeah, I've got this boyfriend. I know he's not a believer, but I, I really think that this is the Lord's will. And we would take them to be not unequally yoked. And we would show them that God's word clearly states that you are not to become unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Has it worked out before? Yeah, it has. Is it God's will? No, it's not. Ever. And we'd tell them that and they'd say, yeah, but I've prayed about it and I have peace. God will never, ever, ever contradict His word and His will to give you what you want. Ever. God does not answer prayers outside of, of His will. If you choose to go your own way in God's name, God may just let you do it and that's a dangerous and unhappy place to be. Third and finally, God answers the prayers of those that genuinely seek Him. This is the good point. This is the encouraging point that God answers the prayers of those that genuinely seek Him. The promise of answered prayers are found throughout the teachings of our Lord and particularly in the book of John. John 14, verses 13 and 14 say this, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. We talk regularly about what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. It's not using His name. In fact, oftentimes when we end our prayers, we say in Jesus' name, Amen. But because we say in Jesus' name, Amen, that does not mean that we're praying in His name. When we pray in God's name, it means that we are coming to God through Christ. That we are aligning ourselves with everything that Jesus Christ is. His person, His character, and His work. And, and as we align ourselves with His name, we are coming to God in His name. We are praying in Jesus' name. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It's the exact same thing that it means when we say, whosoever shall Believe on the name of the Lord shall be saved. To believe on His name is not to believe that Jesus is His name. It's to believe that He is and it is to align ourselves with His person and His character and His work. And as we align ourselves with Jesus Christ, we are believing on His name and we are saved. And so the condition is that if we pray and ask in His name, aligned with Him, He will give it to us. When is it that we are promised to have what we ask? When what we ask is conformed to the revealed will of God. Now, does that mean that we know always what to ask? No. Does that mean that we always know what we're, what we're even asking for? No. It doesn't mean we have to know His will before we ask for His will. But what it means is to the degree that we do know His will, we need to conform ourselves to it. To the degree that God has revealed Himself to us, 
we should not go to him asking him for things that are contrary to it. We should go to him aligned with him. John fifteen seven. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. A strong conditional statement here. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, then it shall be done unto you as you ask. The answers to prayer are conditional upon the degree to which we are seeking conformity to the expectations of God. John sixteen twenty three, And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. And then finally, 1 John five fourteen. And this is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. God hears us when we ask according to His will. And as I've mentioned, let me just assure you, this does not mean that we have to know God's will, when we're seeking God's will in prayer, it doesn't mean that we have to know God's will while we're seeking God's will. I'm seeking God's will as far as a job for, for myself or I'm seeking God's will as far as the next step in my education and I need to know what God's will is for the next step in my education before I ask. That's not what God's saying here. I'm praying to find God's will, but as I'm praying to find God's will, Everything that I know I ought to be for Him, I ought to be doing as I'm seeking the next step. As I'm seeking to know what to do tomorrow, I ought to be conformed to what I know to do today. That's what it means. And so Psalm 37 verses 3 and 4 tell us this. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. These two verses are a beautiful lesson in prayer, but one which we must fully understand in order to fully appreciate. The psalmist is saying here that by trusting in the Lord and delighting in the Lord, we will have the desires of our heart. These conditions upon which we find our heart's desires makes one thing abundantly clear. When we are given the desires of our hearts, The reason we're given the desire of our heart is because our desire is also God's desire. And so when our desire is God's desire, then God gives us the desire of our heart. When God gives us the desires of our heart, we can be confident that our heart's desires have first been given to us by God. When you find the desires of your heart being answered, you can know without a doubt that the desires of your heart are also the desires of God's heart given to you as you have delighted yourself in the Lord and trusted in Him. And so as you know God's Word, long for God's Word, and obey God's Word, you will find your heart's desires shaped into God's heart. And you will find the desires of your heart answered abundantly. And this is why 1 John 5 tells us that this is the confidence that we have in Him. It's confidence that we, will, that we know that when we ask according to His will, we have what is position, uh, petitioned of us because if our heart is aligned with God's heart, then what we want is what God wants. And what God wants is what we want. And it's like coming together to see God's work done. And I hope 
you see in this pro- uh, you see in this process, it is often that our hearts are not in the right place, and we must keep asking and seeking and knocking until such time that we have aligned ourselves with God, and our heart have found God's desires and grant us those desires and love. So when Jesus Christ says, "Ask, and it shall be given unto you; seek, and ye shall find; knock." And it shall be opened unto you. For whoever asketh receiveth. And whoever seeketh findeth. And whoever knocketh it shall be opened. What he's saying there is. As you're asking. As you're seeking. As you're knocking. As you're doing what God has called you to do. As you're aligning yourself with His will. You are drawing yourself closer to Him. And He is drawing you closer to Himself. And then. You're where God wants you. And He can give you that cookie. He can give you the desires of your heart. And that is what God speaks of in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Prayer is not an opportunity to milk the God cow. It's an opportunity to place our needs and our desires before a loving God who will without fail provide for us. All the while growing our willing hearts into exactly what He desires us to be for Him. And such was Judah's problem as we come back to Ezekiel 14 and 15. These elders came to God not to lovingly petition their father as the natural outworking of their delight in him and trust in him. Rather, these men were coming like Balaam, confirmed in their sinful hearts, looking for God to somehow place a stamp of approval upon their own wicked desires. And God tells them he won't play their game. And he doesn't play it now either. So how about you this evening? Have you been asking God amiss? Have you found yourself to be the kind that would seek to manipulate God into giving to you according to your own lusts? Have you been walking down a path of your own choosing and somehow convincing yourself like Balaam that you have God's blessing even though you know it's against God's will? Or do you come to God with a heart of genuine love, not always knowing God's will, but always seeking and knocking to find God's will so that when you do know it and when you do find it, you may rejoice with God, not only that He has answered your prayer, but that He has made us more like His Son, Jesus Christ. Three principles of a prayer answering God. God does not answer prayers outside His His will. If you choose to go your own way in God's name, He may just let you do it. And then third and finally, God answers the prayers of those who genuinely seek Him. This is not intended to make you fear prayer, to make prayer more difficult. In fact, it's intended to make prayer easier. It's intended to make you go to this book and as you've aligned yourself with this book, to humbly come before a God that does delight in answering your prayers, that does eagerly desire to bless you and know that as you ask in His name, He will give you the petitions of your heart.